Thank all of you for being here on this dreary day. It's good to see you. It's good to be together. Uh, I have to remind folks from time to time when the weather turns like this that we have a mighty fine roof on this house and uh, the heat is working well so it's a warm and dry and a great place to be, a beautiful place to be this time of the year or any time of the year so it's good to see you but thank you for making the effort especially to be out and about on a day like today. Let me remind you just quickly, um, should have been in your bulletin or one of the ushers handed you one of the enough cards, the the pledge cards, and our latest update, our goal was 200 to be returned. We have 174. We're very close. Uh, so thank you. But if you haven't turned your card in yet, we still would love to hear from you. And there's still plenty of time from now till the end of the year. You can drop them by, drop them by on Christmas Eve in the plate, or drop them by the office uh, tomorrow, or come by and see Owen anytime. Thank you for what you've done. And as we look toward the end of the year, we've made some progress, but we've still got a ways to go. And sometimes folk will say to me, well, it's going to take a miracle of all this to work out this year. And I say, it's okay. God's still in the miracle business. That's why we're here today, uh, to celebrate God's greatest miracle, God's greatest gift. So thank you for what you've done. Prayerfully consider helping us to finish the year strong so these amazing ministries here like we heard last week with O Holy Night and so many other things can continue. Uh, thank you for, for all that you do. Our scripture lesson for today, and part of it was read when we uh, lit the candles while ago, and thanks to the Ridge family for their assistance with that and all of you who've been a part of that. But looking again to the Old Testament, Micah, the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading with verse 2. And read through 5a, or the first part of verse 5. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. I know we have a gospel lesson listed, but... Truth be told, we've read that gospel lesson twice and we'll be referring to it more. The canticle of Mary that we read responsively earlier is the same as our gospel lesson for today, the Magnificat, Mary's song. And then the hymn that we sang right after that also paraphrases Mary's song and tells the story once more. So we've heard it twice and I'll talk about it some more as we go along this morning. But if you want to take some time later to read through Mary's song and to try to picture a young girl singing such a powerful song, uh, I would recommend that. It, it will bless you and cause you to think. So here we are once again. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday before Christmas, and now it's really on the final countdown. Count the day and Christmas Eve. Where does that leave us? I know we used to say two shopping days till Christmas, but... 
the internet and Amazon has changed all that, so I don't know how many shopping days are left. It's kind of confusing now, but we count the days, we count the time, hoping that we've got it all together. But I hopefully think maybe that's not the only way we ought to be measuring our time or, or counting the days as they go by, because when we add that layer of stress to all the other layers of stress that come along at this time of the year, then it gets a little difficult, a little iffy sometimes unbearable for some folks, the cooking and cleaning and wrapping and last-minute travel arrangements. And for many, because of what's going on in their lives, all is not calm and all is not bright. But for those who comprehend the reality, the core of Christmas, the gracious and generous gift of love lying in a manger in a feed trough of all things, perhaps these days are prime-time opportunities to testify to love. And that's been our theme for Advent 2019 here at Noonan First United Methodist Church, Testify to Love. On the first Sunday, we testified to righteous love, the love that God has for us and we have for God, and the love that we have for one another and for all others. The love that causes us to build right relationships with each other and with our Creator God. On the second Sunday of Advent, we talked about unfettered love. Testify to unfettered love, the love that breaks the chains and the shackles that keep us from witnessing boldly to one another, from sharing our faith and living life abundant and eternal. Unfettered love, unchained love. And then last Sunday was our magnificent, a magnificent Sunday here. We, we have many through the year. But certainly the music last Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 traditional and the Old Holy Night presentation, in both of those presentations together, we had over 1,200 folks. And it's an amazing gift to this community. And I'm grateful for that wonderful music. But also last Sunday as we lit the candles, the candle of joy, the pink candle, we talked about testifying to the kind of love that breaks the chains, the love that opens the doors, liberating love. We didn't have time to go into a lot of detail. We may do that again on another day. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll testify to divine love. But today, we want to testify and spend this fourth Sunday of Advent, testify to transforming love, to transform, to change forms inwardly and outwardly, to change the shape of how we live out our lives in this world all of our days. Both of the scripture lessons speak of the transformation that is brought about by the one who is to come. Micah, another of the minor prophets near the close of the Old Testament. And again, minor prophet doesn't mean that what they had to say was insignificant, was minor. It meant to say that they said less than the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Micah, one of the minor prophets, the lesson begins today with words that are so familiar to most Christians. We've heard them. We've seen them on our Christmas cards. We repeat them over and over again. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, one of the little clans of Judah, insignificant, small, from you shall come for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old of ancient days. And sometimes when I read that and think about how small and insignificant Bethlehem was, and I also think about an expression that I hear folks use from time to time, not as much as I used to, but when a major event would happen, something large and just beyond explanation, we would say that that is an event of biblical proportions. 
biblical proportions were often small. Because that's the way God works, still does. The still small voice, Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, not mighty Rome. Biblical proportions could mean very small. So we keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts open for the way God is moving in this world. And this transformer, this one who brings transformation will transform you and me and our hearts and our home and transform our churches into the places God has called us to be, the things we've been called to be. And then after Micah, hundreds of years later, there was a girl in a little backwater town in the region of the Galilee. Galilee was an area. A little podunk, nothing town, again, called Nazareth. And the girl's name was Mary. In one of my favorite devotional books, there is, on March the 25th, reference to the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th, nine months before December 25th, Angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And the writer in this devotional is describing some of the works of church art. And church art sometimes or often reflects the period of the artist more so than the period of the subject. But this is one picture in particular, and this writer's describing it. And we think about Mary and the Annunciation and Gabriel coming and such a young child. As the ancient prophecies foretold, it is a virgin who is to bear the Holy Child. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the angel announces, and the power of the house shall overshadow thee. It is not old Joseph, but God who is the Father. Mary pondered these things in her heart, and countless generations have pondered them with her. She's sitting on a Gothic throne, and she has her hands crossed at her breast, and the book she's been reading open on her lap. The dove of the Holy Spirit hovers in the archway above her, and Gabriel kneels close by with a lily in his hand, this time the emblem of purity and chastity and kingship. And again, Mary's head is bowed, and she looks up at him through her lashes. There's possibly the faintest trace of a cynic smile on her lips, a skeptic smile. How shall this be? Since I know not a man, she asked. And the angel's painted gaze turns her question back upon herself. The angel, the whole creation, even God himself, all hold their breath, waiting on the answer of a girl. Be it unto me according to thy word, she finally says. And in this painting, the jewels blossom. Like morning glories on the arch above them, everything has turned to gold, a golden girl, a golden angel. They're on their feet now. Their knees are bent and they're dancing to a glittering rhythm. Gabriel's robe swings free about his ankles and his scroll flies out from his waist like a sash. Mary's hands are raised palm up and forward toward God and Gabriel reaches out to take one of them. And they are caught up together in a stately golden dance. Their faces are grave. From a golden cloud between them and above, the leader of the dance looks on. The announcement has been made and heard, and the world is with child. It's just overwhelming sometimes for me to stop and think about it, that all of creation held its breath, waiting on the response of one Girl, and 
How important that was. Mary is in the grips of transforming love. And her first word of testimony to her kinsfolk, to Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John the baptizer, and after Elizabeth responds with joy to the good news that Mary brings to Mary's testifying to transforming love, then Mary speaks or sings, My spirit rejoices. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's song, the Magnificat, we read it earlier. It's in the Canticle of Mary. It was in that hymn. You've read it in the scripture over and over again. She sings of how God's transforming love is shaping and reshaping her life. And of how that same love was going to radically transform the world. Think about what she was singing about. This is not just some sweet, sentimental lullaby scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts bringing down the powerful from their thrones and lifting up the lowly filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty following this ruler Jesus will transform and refocus all of our priorities in this world? Are we willing to be gripped by this kind of transforming love? Thinking about this question, and having visited just over three or four years ago, Mickey and I visited the land of our Methodist forebears. We went on the John Wesley Heritage Tour in England, and uh, amazing, I would recommend it to any of you. But I was thinking about transforming love and remembering this trip and thinking about John Wesley. And it may seem a strange time to talk about him, but I want to do that for a little while. His life was transformed in amazing ways by the transforming love of God. So I want to consider this religion of the heart for just a bit. Remind us of who we are, how we got here. The United Methodist Church, one scholar said, is the lengthened shadow of an 18th century priest of the Church of England, John Wesley, and his hymn-writing brother, Charles Wesley. I've got a coffee mug, a couple of them in my office. Well, really, I've got tons of them. But one of them is John Wesley. Drink all the coffee you can by all the means you can in all the places you can, that kind of thing. And the other one is a Charles Wesley thing. It says something like 9,899 hymns. Who is John? Hashtag sibling rivalry. So, well, but it was John and it was Charles through his hymns as we continue to sing them even today and we'll sing his One of his most powerful hymns, if you're back here on Christmas Eve, and I hope you will be, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but they influenced the movement. And John was born June 17, 1703. But his father, Samuel, was not very good with record keeping. So they're not really sure if John was the 13th or the 14th child. And I started thinking, well, after 9 or 10, you probably lose count anyway, so I don't... I don't know. That's a lot of children. And John's mother, Susanna, she really was much more of an influence in his life and shaping him than her husband and the guidance of her children. Set aside time, an hour for them every week for each one. Susanna was one of the strongest influencers on John's life. She had an independent mind. She had strong opinions on most subjects. But her health suffered because she had given birth to a total of 19 children. 
So life in the Epworth Rectory was no island of tranquility for the Wesley. Samuel tended to stir up trouble in the parish. Some folks just seemed to do that, and he did that, had that reputation. One night in 1709, the rectory where the family was living next to the church caught fire, and the family barely escaped. And the last to be rescued was John. And later biographers would look back on this encounter with death as a sign of divine providence. And you've probably heard that expression. John Wesley was described as a brand plucked from the burning for a special work. God had set him aside. The terrible fire was of suspicious origins. They think somebody in the village or the church may have set the fire. So at an early age, the Wesley boys learned that religion can stir dangerous passions in folks. And they learned that religious folks can be just as dangerous as others. Do tell. (laughs) While the boys Samuel Jr. and Charles and John received the best education that England had to offer, as was the custom, the seven surviving Wesley sisters received only a rudimentary education and some domestic training how to take care of a household. They were confined to poor marriages and they lived very drab lives and they took little interest in the religious movement that their brothers had originated. It was not the best of time for of times for, for women in that day. John Wesley was not a simple, uncomplicated person. And no one ever claimed that he was an easy person to live with. Domestic tranquility was just not high on his list of priorities. Honestly, great people are sometimes so busy changing the world that they don't take time to tend to things at home. John Wesley had an unfortunate marriage that's not talked about very much. And his comment upon the departure of his unhappy wife, he said, I did not leave her. I did not send her away. I will not call her back. And the story goes that when his wife died, word reached him and he was addressing a crowd, addressing a large group. And he told the crowd, he said, I have just heard that my wife has died. Well, goodness, if they did marriage enrichment retreats back in that day, John Wesley probably didn't lead too many of those. I wouldn't think that was not his strong suit. But none of this family business can account for the changes that took place in his life a little later on. As a student at Oxford, he had an unusual drive and desire and an intense passion to deepen his spiritual life. He was greatly influenced by a book on spiritual disciplines by a guy named William Law, Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Law invited people to develop certain habits and practices that would cause their faith to grow stronger and to stay more constantly focused on God. And such discipline was very attractive to the young Mr. Wesley, who was troubled in spirit and searching for some means of reassurance in his own heart that he had a relationship with God. John Wesley had a reputation for being a methodical person as far back as his student days at Oxford. If we are methodical in the practice of our faith, then we got our madness from the method of Wesley. And in 1732, he gathered five or six of his Oxford friends together and formed something called the Holy Club. They were committed to disciplined Christian living, and they were very methodical in the way they went about things. So Methodism was a term of contempt, not a term of endearment. 
a term of content by which bemused observers wondered what these folks were up to with all their gathering in the early hours and their praying and their systematic spiritual exercises. In turmoil after his father's death, Wesley came to Georgia to minister to the colonists and to the native persons. It was a futile expedition. Wesley only alienated the folks that he had come to serve and to care for. On the way back from his frustrating missionary sojourn in Georgia in 1738, the unhappy Mr. Wesley came in contact with some Moravians. They were a German religious group who were very passionate about their faith and who believed very much in that inner experience, that inner transforming love that changed hearts and brought people into relationship with God, personal salvation. So their firm, assured faith reminded Wesley of how uncertain he was. He was still working on the assumption that an assurance of faith, knowing was a true Christian, was mostly a matter of affirming correct beliefs and going through the right steps and the right practices and rituals. His personal assurance of salvation was to come a few months later in London on Aldersgate Street, May 24, 1738. And many of you have heard this account so many times you could recite it, I'm sure. But let me one more time for all of us. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which Christ works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley never forsook the great doctrines and creeds of the church. Although he never retreated from his commitment to good works as the outward expression of an inner faith, after his Aldersgate experience, he started wedding doctrine and service, an inner heartfelt experience of God with an outward manifestation of caring for and blessing others and sharing the saving grace of God. So today, as United Methodist Christians, who are going through some uncertain times, to be honest, We need to testify to our heritage when we stress the need for every person to know the love of God in a personal, convincing, and transforming way. And there's that that word again, transforming before Aldersgate. Wesley had known of Christ in his head, knew of the forgiveness of sins, knew all those things, had it up here, but not in his heart. And that came to be after Aldersgate. The externals going to church giving and serving and serving with those in need, standing and affirming the creeds, reading the Bible, are all essential. But for all of us who are heirs of John Wesley and Aldersgate, heartfelt personal assurance of that is something that's so, so important. Knowing God's love in our hearts A love that will transform our lives and cause us to see things around us differently and not just stay set in ways that are sometimes not helpful. Transforming love begins its work in here, but it doesn't stay in here. It turns outward toward others, even or should I say especially toward the unlovely. And I bet we've all got a list. Maybe we don't write it down, but somewhere we've got a list 
of those folk in this world that we consider unlovely. And it's difficult to embrace them. Does transforming love change others to become like us, therefore in our eyes making them more lovable? Or does transforming love change our hearts so that we can love even those who see and hear things differently than we do? So, you want to hold that newborn baby. Everybody wants to hold the baby. Yeah, the one in the feed trough, the one wrapped in rags. Okay, but you better be careful. That child's going to change you in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. Hold tight. Don't drop him. Don't ever drop the baby. Make sure you got a good grip. Has he got a good grip on you and me? Are we prepared this day to testify to God's transforming love? Amen.